I am too, and I'm so thankful that you are having me. Thank you for having me to join to talk about this truly, 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 truly important topic. Yes, um, I'm gonna try not to be emotional. <laughs> yes, you know, yes, because, I think you and I both. Yeah, because you know, women all over the world, you know, Caribbean, non-Caribbean, we 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 all have some form of worth and value issues other than just domestic violence. So this is going to be really close, close to my heart. So absolutely. So this is Laverne Gordon and you have the love life now foundation. Yes. Yes. The love life now foundation that is centered around year round domestic violence awareness. We want to keep this issue in the forefront as much as possible, not just when you see it, splashed across a news interview or you read about it in the newspaper. As you know, this issue is happening at least every nine seconds alone in the U.S. and it's even more prevalent in the Caribbean. So again, we exist to provide education, but also to support women in their journey once they've decided to leave and seek help. We try to point them in the right direction for help. And how long has this um, foundation in existence? Proud to say next month, 10 years. And it's unbelievable to see that. Yeah, unbelievable to say that. Um, But I'm so thankful and blessed um, based on my history with the issue that we're here now to be able to to continue to do this work. Yes. And um, big up to Johnny Bravo on here. Big up to him. Yes. Yes. Johnny is... I like to call him the great connector because he is that guy that just makes it happen no matter what. So kudos and love and virtual hugs to Johnny Bravo for sure. Definitely. So let's talk about a little bit about you, if you don't mind. So you are from Trinidad. You grew up in Trinidad. Yes. Yes. Go go ahead. And you have experience. You've seen your mother go through domestic violence, mental and physical abuse. Absolutely. So first I want to talk about the fact that I am from Laventil. Laventil. Good old Laventil up in the hood, um, you know, is where I grew up, is where I knew myself. I lived there till I was 15. And for all the years that I lived there, our father brutally, brutally abused our mother in front of us. It wasn't something that he hit to do. It was our complete normal. I was the middle of five children. And by the time I came along, my older siblings, who were about seven years apart from me, had already experienced the brunt of the child abuse. And as I said, my mother was going through the high rise of the physical abuse. And so by the time I came along, six, seven, eight years old watching this, I knew that I wanted none of what he was dishing out to them or to her. And so I did everything to stay on his good side. He was a very strict parent um, and his idea of love and affection was telling you that you needed to go to school and get the good grades you needed to be to do right in the community if you were a girl don't come home pregnant if you're a boy 
Yes. Don't get in trouble. Don't get locked up. And unfortunately, children that grow up in these types of settings, they often tend to go on to become the victims themselves mm-hmm. and or abusers because this is what they know. Yeah. And I got to tell you, Cindy, for the entire time that I lived in Laventille, mm-hmm. not just in my host household setting, every other house was experiencing the same thing. So the woman next door, yes. okay. Yes. Two houses down. Yes. Same thing. The husband would beat her or the spouse or the partner would beat her if she didn't cook the food right. Yes. If she was talking to another man. Yes. If the chores weren't done right. I mean, anything or everything they could find an excuse for, they would unleash brutal physical attacks. And again, this is our complete normal. But for me, by the time I was 9, 10, 11 years old, I kept saying that would never be me. Now, the dynamic between my relationship with our parents was that my father was well-educated, mm-hmm. was the only person in his um, family at the time to attend trade school, college level, edu- have a college level education, yeah. and was articulate and charming and was the complete face of what a narcissist is. And we'll get into that later. Yes. But then my mother, on the other hand, she was uneducated heavily financially dependent on our father and completely was in my eyes weak. I saw the level of, you know, power that he had in terms of his education, his articulacy, the way he spoke to other men that were of his level. He worked for the, for, for the department of labor. Like mm-hmm. I love the fact that he got up and read a newspaper as a child, you look at that and you right. equate that with power, Right. And then, as I said, I equated what my mother was going through at the time as weak. I no longer obviously look at her as as that. But as a child, this is what you take in. Right. And so I kept saying, I want to grow up to be a judge or a lawyer. I want to be someone powerful. Mm -hmm. And even though I admired what he was on the outside when he stepped outside our doors or our neighborhood, I hated who he was as a father and a husband. And I always said I wanted to be a lawyer or a judge, someone that could prosecute men like him, someone that can throw away the key and never let him, people like him come out again. So um, I, by the time I was 15, I, I should say about 14, my grandparents who had already left in the States for since the seventies mm-hmm. wrote a letter to our father to ask him if he would allow me to come to the States to um, finish high school. They saw a lot of potential in me. Um, and he believed the same, right? Like I said, I did everything to stay on his good side. So I was that child that got the good grades. I was that child that was very manually, manually in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. I was that child that just stayed and did good. Yeah. And so um, he let me go and I left my parents. I left my, 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 my siblings and came to the States, finished high school in Boston and then had to go back to get our permanent residency at the time set up. My grandparents had filed for us. But while I was there, I was now 18. My younger siblings were older. My older siblings were older. And we all were not standing for our father to put his hands on our mother. And he realized that over the next two years, his this level of power and control, which is what this issue surrounds, power yeah. and control. Yes. Okay. Okay. You- he realized that that level of power and control that he had was dwindling and he let my mother go. By the time our permanent residency came through, he let her come to the States for the first time. My mother was free. My mother was free to think on her own, to do as she pleased. But even though she was tens of thousands of miles away, Cindy, that emotional and mental control still lived. I remember my mother, God bless her heart. 
she was working at an, as an entry-level um, kitchen aide at a hospital, mm-hmm. a very well-known rehab hospital in Boston. And she would always, every day after work, have to find a phone card. Remember back then, phone yeah. cards were really prevalent? Mm-hmm. She, always, she always had to find a phone card to call him, to check in with him. And I kept, I used to say to mommy, I said, mommy, you're no longer, you no longer have to do that. You don't, <laughs> you are okay to be, you're okay to not check in. You're okay to live your own life. And so it took some time, but after a while she was able to come out from under that mentality. And I, you know, oftentimes I say to folks that when you're in these types of relationships, it's not, I'm going to stay and see how much I can change him mm-hmm. or her. It's because you have to remove yourself from the equation. Because oftentimes when you're there, you yeah. are just part of the enablism, unfortunately. Yeah. And yeah. they are going to continue to take liberties. Just as you're making a choice to leave, mm-hmm. they have to want to make the choice to change. And they're not going to do that when you're there. So, um you know, my father ended up passing away from natural causes um, in a hospital room by himself in Trinidad um, in 2002. He died of kidney and liver failure. And karma is a, is a hell of a thing. Mm. So I'll leave that there. Um, but that's what, again, I grew up seeing. And, and for all intent purposes, I did everything in my power to steer away from what I thought a victim was. Poor, uneducated, financially dependent on someone else. And I was 21 now in the States going to Suffolk University at nights, which is a a prominent law school here in Boston. Mm -hmm. And I was working an entry-level job in corporate America. I was a junior secretary. And I was still living with my grandparents, my mom and my brothers, but I was on my way to getting my own apartment, right? And so um, I met this guy at this particular job that I was working and things were going fantastic. And everything was great for about three months until about three months into the relationship. And when I say everything was fantastic, I mean, the level of attention that this man gave me was, and every day I kept saying, wow, what did I do to deserve him? What, why did he pick me? You know, I felt so lucky. It was lavish dates. It was, um, walks. It was, you know, flowers. It was, it was like legit out of a Hallmark movie. And every day I kept questioning, how lucky can I be, right? Until about three months into the relationship, I had started suffering from allergies. um, And I'd never had that before. So I thought it was a really bad cold. So I called the office and told them that I wasn't going to come in. um, And I went back to bed. And he called me about 15 minutes later, completely irate, completely upset that I hadn't checked in with him. And that was one of the big red flags that I had missed in this this three-month courtship, right? Is that every morning he would at least, he would call me at least six, five, seven times before I even got to the office. And I took it as, my gosh, he just loves me so much. He wants to make sure I'm okay. Yes. Right. And not knowing that he was making sure I said where I said I was going to be at any given time. And I missed that. And so this particular morning, he was completely upset. He showed up at my house, maybe about 10 minutes later. And he barged in the bed, the bedroom that I occupied at my grandparents' house. And he started rummaging through my stuff. And at this point, he's acting insanely paranoid. So this was like a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde scenario. And I'm scared because I've never seen this side of him. Mm -hmm. So he's, he's going under the bed. He's in the closet. He's behind the curtain. And then he finally says, he said, who's been here with you? 
And I said, nobody. I said, I'm sick. I said, I thought you came over here to, you know, make me feel better. And he said, make, make you feel better. And then he came up over me as I sat on the bed. And he said, I know you were too good to be true. And he slapped me so hard that I saw stars. And then he stormed out. He left. So I'm sitting there with the sting of the slap, yeah. holding my face, wondering, what did I do to make this happen? Maybe I should have called him. Maybe, you know, I, I did wrong because we did always. Yes, they make you feel. They make like, you feel like you did something wrong. Like legitimately. So I'm sitting there. And I'm, I'm like, you know what? No, 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 no. About five minutes later, I was like, no, I didn't do anything. I told the truth and I'm done because I did equate what was happening to me with what my mother had went through in that moment. And I said, you know what? I can control this because I'm saying I'm done with him. I went away for the weekend. I didn't call him. I turned off my phone. Back then it was nights and weekends free for the for your cell phone, right? And, 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 and so I wanted to save my minutes, but I also didn't want to hear from him. But when I came back Sunday night, I went to New York. I came back to Boston and my brother met me at the door and he said, you're pretty popular around here. I said, why? He said, such and such left something for you. And I went into my bedroom and it was two dozen purple roses, still one of my favorite colors. And I didn't know it was the domestic violence awareness color at the time. But I looked at the roses and there was a card that said, I miss you. I love you. I'm sorry. Call me. And I thought to myself, wow, what a nice big gesture. Right. And then I turned on my phone for the first time since I'd been away. And there were a slew of messages from him. Tearful. He sounded so remorseful. I'm right. sorry, baby. I, 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 I just want to. Yes. After they do this, <laughs> like, Legit. Legit. And it's like, oh, my God. I mean, did I overreact? You know what? Let me call him back. And I did. On that call, he sounded completely tearful. He was sorry. He will never do it again. He doesn't know what came over him. You know, I just, and this is the, this is the best part The he said, I love you so much that you make, made me act that way. So putting the blame on me in that moment, I'm 21 years old. What do you do with that? Right. You take the blame yeah. because you say, you know what? I can understand his side of it. You begin to make excuses as to why the slap was okay to happen. Right. And then again, still equating what happened to me, what my mother had went through. I said, you know what? I have control. Yeah. You know what? He's not beating me with a machete. Right. He's not beating me in front of the house. Yeah. Okay. He yeah. went to an elaborate way to, to say, I'm sorry, my father never did any of that. Right. So guess what? I got control. Form. It comes in a different, the abuse comes in a different form. It's not something you and so you, you're second guessing yourself. Absolutely. And so it was to the point where, again, I took myself away again. All I'm thinking about is that I'm educated or I'm on my way to being that mm -hmm. I'm, I'm independent. I am nothing like my mother. That's what I kept telling myself, not knowing how much control I did not have. He had already started grooming me as to what I could and would accept. And in these types of relationships, that's what abusers do. And I like to talk about them a lot because that's where the blame and the shame should lie. Not with us. Right. We didn't do this to ourselves, right? Yeah. And so, um, you know, he groomed me for three months. For yeah. three months, there were things that I kept pushing to the wayside because I said, you know what? Lightning's not going to strike twice. 
-hmm. Nobody's going to love me this way anymore, you know, another time. So I got to hold on to this. Mm -hmm. Jesus Christ, look at all these great dates and all these good flowers. And I I wasn't necessarily equating it to material things. It was the level of it. It was the heightenedness of it. So if a guy called me who I had known for a long time, I had a lot of guy friends. I was a social butterfly. I knew a lot of people. But at that time, once we started dating, if a call came through and he would get a kind of an attitude, right? And I'd say, you know what? Isolate. That's kind of disrespectful. I'm not going to talk to guys anymore. <laughs> you know what? I'm going to stop that. If 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 we were around my girlfriends and my girlfriends, people on the outside looking in can pick up on the stuff, right? But we can't. We can't. And so my girlfriends would sometimes in my ear, like, I don't know, Laverne. <laughs> and oftentimes when I went back and I'm just with him, he'd say, I don't like her. She doesn't like me. Yeah, You know what? Yep. She doesn't understand us. Right? So slowly the isolation begins. And before you know it, you don't have any friends. Nope. Your contact with your people I'll has go. dwindled. Yes. And it's just you and him. After I accepted that apology, that turned into almost two years of more heightened physical, verbal, and, and, and emotional abuse, mm-hmm. right? And people often ask, how do these women or men, right? Because it does affect men too. How do people get into these types of relationships? Well, that's how easy it can be. Mm-hmm. I certainly, again, and I was from a different, what I thought in my mind, a different category, but mm-hmm. yet here I was. So two years had passed and I'd been accepting, choking, he was hitting. He never slapped me again after that first attack. Um, it was always choking. It was punches. That was his favorite. Punches about the body. So I'd always have to protect my breast and my chest area. Um, he would slap. I mean, he would pull my hair. He would push me. Um, and it just got so bad that I was like, you know what? This is what love is, right? So subconsciously, I just, again, said, you know, it happened there. And I guess this is the way that it happens here. This is what it is until I got to my breaking point. So you hear a lot of the times that, you know, in the news, you'll hear she was getting ready to leave and he killed her. Yeah. She was getting ready to leave and take the kids and he killed her. Yeah. And it's because you get to that point where you realize that this is wrong. And I got to that point. Right. And this particular night I was living in a studio apartment. I now have my studio apartment. I'm on my own. He would frequent there a lot of days. And this particular night he came over and just by his demeanor, I knew that something was about to pop off. Right. His mannerism was different. He looked upset and I'm like, oh my God. All right, here we go. Okay. Um, and I'm just thinking, how long is this going to, it's going to last this time. Right. So he walks into my studio. It's a bedroom a kitchen and a bathroom. So it's just a long space, no real width to it. Mm-hmm. And he starts accusing me. Who, who you've, who, who have you been talking to today? Um, you know, were you talking to that guy down the hall? I know you must have while I wasn't here. All the accusations are flying, right? And I'm trying to appease him. No, I've been waiting for you. I miss you. I love you. I only want you. And he starts rummaging through a stack of books. I had a stack of books and he was doing like this to some of the books that had moved with me over the years. And he, he takes one of the books and it was, it was waiting to exhale by Terry McMillan, mm-hmm. a book that I had gotten from my, my aunt when I had moved to the States years ago mm-hmm. and out pops this picture and he takes the picture and he looks at it and then he flung it at me and he stormed off into my kitchen and I picked up the picture and Cindy, I almost died inside 
because it was a picture of me and my then ex-boyfriend in Trinidad sitting on the beach looking very happy, right? Yeah. And I knew what he was thinking in his mind. Now, I had used this picture as a bookmark, put Mm. it in the book, read it cover to cover many times and left it there and forgot about it. The more I tried to explain to him while he was in the kitchen doing nothing, Mm-mm. And he came back into the bedroom space with a knife. This was the first time that he had grabbed a weapon because mm-hmm. all the other times was his hands. Yeah. And he said, I'm going to slit your throat tonight and nobody's going to find you. And I believed him. Yeah. I believe every word he said, because who am I going to call? I don't have friends. I definitely don't want my family to know what's, what I'm going through. The level of shame that I had felt up until that point was bar none high. And so he said, you've been making a fool of me this entire time. I, I had a day bed in my, in my bedroom space at the time. He, I laid, you know, he came on the bed, forcing me to then lie down flat on my back. And he came over me. And I'm being very frank with folks because I want folks to know that this issue isn't something that, you know, is cutesy behind closed doors. And, oh, she got a push and that's it. This is the level of um, what these attacks can entail. Okay. And so he came over me and he pressed a knife up against my throat enough to let to let me know that he could slit my throat at any time. And he starts strangling me one hand on my throat, the other knife with the other hand with the knife. And he says he starts calling me out my name. He's yelling at me. He's calling me all sorts of names. He says, I can't believe this. What have you been having phone sex with this guy? I mean, all the accusations are flying Mm -hmm. and I can barely talk. And I remember him slapping me. And I remember thinking to myself, he's never done that since the first time. So this is a different level of attack. And I remember looking at his face. He was light skinned and it was, it was the reddest I'd ever seen it. And I remember thinking, okay, Laverne, he's going to slit your throat. And he's going to leave you here. Nobody's going to find you for days. My job's probably not going to find, you know, miss me for a couple of days. I'm going to say, oh, she's AWOL and she didn't check in. Oh, how unprofessional of her. My family's certainly not going to come looking for me because, again, I've told them, stay out of my business. Right. right? Um, And, you know, my school, Suffolk University, they're not looking. They're like, oh, she stopped coming. That's it. Right. We're not getting her. So let's keep it moving. Um, and I just remember all of these things running through my head. I remember thinking, wow, this is how it's going to end in this tiny little apartment. And he was over me. He was punching me. He was strangling me. He was slapping me. He was spitting in my face. It was high. Then I remember he strangled me to the point where I lost consciousness and I came through with him punching me in my gut. Then he stopped and he started pacing the floor, yelling profanities talking all sorts of mess. And then he came on top of me again. This started at about nine o'clock the night before, and it went till about two o'clock the next morning. He would stop, go, stop, go. So this was a night of torture. Okay. When he was done at about two o'clock in the morning, he laid next to me, like nothing had happened. He was tired yeah. and he went to sleep. And what did I do? I lay next to him because where am I going to go? Who am I going to call that hour in the morning? I laid there and I whimpered myself quiet because I didn't want my neighbors to hear. I would always say that if something happened at the apartment, that I would stay quiet enough, cry quietly. And if they heard him, his loud voice, I could equate that with, oh yeah, he was just watching a a football game and, you know, he got mad because his team was losing, (laughs) you know, right. Um, 
So this particular morning, I laid there next to him and I whimpered quietly until about four o'clock that morning. I felt the sharpest pain that I had ever felt. It felt like a dagger was trying to pierce through my skin. So I was like, okay, Laverne, you watched enough Law and Order <laughs> and Lifetime to know that something is detrimentally wrong on your insides. It's good. It could be that you're bleeding internally. It could be that something is broken. So you have a choice. Do I lay here and wait for him to wake up and start and finish the job? Or do I make a choice to go to the hospital? I thankfully had lived maybe about six or seven blocks away from a hospital, about five minutes driving from where I lived. So I quietly for the first time chose myself mm -hmm. and I got up quietly with every fearing bone in my body and I got dressed and I limped downstairs. I lived on the third floor. I limped downstairs and I lived directly next to a train station. So there were always cabs. I grabbed the first cab I saw and I asked them to take me to the hospital. When we got to the first light, there's only two lights between where I live and the hospital. He realized that I was gone. He jumped in his car and he pulled up next to the cab. We're at a red light. He starts yelling, get out the cab. I need to talk to you. Where are you going? Get out. And I'm like dying. I tell the driver, I said, please, that is my ex-boyfriend. So that's the first time I referred to him as my ex. I knew physically that I was done with this relationship because I knew if I went back, mm -hmm. that my, the next time I'd be dead. Yeah. So my ex-boyfriend is trying to kill me. I said, and if you let me out of this cab, I'm as good as dead. I said, please, if you have to run the red light, run it. He didn't say a word. He looked at me, he looked at his car, and he ran the red light. When he ran the red light, my ex-buser started drag racing the cab. When he saw that the cab took a left into the hospital, he sped away. What I didn't know at that time was that he believed that I was going to tell, that I was going to speak up, that I was going to say something, and that my words had power. Yeah. But I didn't know that. Yeah. I was a scared 23-year-old. Yeah. You're scared. Yeah, we're scared. To, uh, yeah. Out of your mind. At the core of this issue was fear. So yeah. I went into the ER, and again, with that level of shame, I didn't want these ER nurses looking at me like I was less than, so I lied. Initially, I said I fell in the shower and that I hit here and I hit here and this hurt and this hurt. And they ran x-rays conducive to that. When the ER doctor came in the room, the first thing he said after he took out the x-ray pictures was, who did this to you? And just as this guy is quiet now, I was dead quiet. He said, if you tell me who did this to you, I can get you help. Mm -hmm. Cindy, that was the most daunting word that I had ever heard, the word help, because that meant to me that the police were going to get involved. That meant to me that my family was going to find out yeah. what was really happening to me. And I was afraid of them saying to me, how could you let yourself go through this after you know what your mother went through? Mm -hmm. Okay. That potentially meant that my job was going to find out what was happening. I was one of only two black women in my, in my office. I had now moved on from the company where he and I had met, and I was working for a financial banking and finance company. Mm 